Today's scripture is John 20, 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric. It is a joy. It is a joy to be with all of you this Easter. Um, I'm the pastor at Trinity. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I would love to meet you over tacos later. As I was thinking about what to preach on, this Easter Sunday, the concept, the idea, the word that just kept coming back to me was the idea of doubt. And this Easter story that we just read about the world's most famous doubter, he's known as Doubting Thomas. Why doubt on such a, a day of celebration, on a day of tacos and fun and Easter egg hunts. Why talk about doubt? Well, these past few years, I think that all of us, at some level, have become doubters and skeptics. We doubt the news. All of us, we doubt the news. We feel like we can't tell when we're reading the news what is fake news and what is real news. And not just the little things and the little stories, but when it comes to big things like war and pandemic, we're not sure what to trust. We doubt our leaders, we doubt our politicians. I know that's nothing new, but it feels to me that doubt in politics is at an all-time high. Even things we thought that we could count on, that could guard us and shield us from doubt, like science. We saw science couldn't stop COVID, and science couldn't really agree on what was happening and how to deal with it. Now we even have to become doubters when we check our email from people that we know. For some reason, <laughs> scammers keep impersonating me to our staff. This is happening like all the time. And just this past week, one of our staff members, Melissa Davis, got this email. And it said this in the subject line. Peace be with you, Melissa Davis. <laughs> well, that comes from this passage. That's something Jesus would say, but that is not how I write a subject line in my emails. <laughs> it said, hi, how are you doing? Are you available? I need a favor from you. Email me as soon as you get. Space break, space break. This message. Very dramatic. <laughs> God bless you, Pastor Eric. That wasn't me, obviously. And another said, 
It was even more obvious scam. I need to change my direct deposit details for you. Would you please send me your checking account info? <laughs> if you get an email along those lines that says it's from me, it is not from me. Be skeptical and doubt it. But we have to be skeptical even when it comes to opening up our email. On top of all this, many of us are dealing with doubt when it comes to our faith. Some of you have never believed, but you're here today. We're so glad that you are here today and that you are listening. Listening to what Easter might all be about. Some of you today are just holding on to faith. The difficulty of these past few years, maybe there's a particular difficulty in your life and it's causing you to doubt God. And maybe that's something new for you. For many of you, because of what you've experienced in the church, from what you've seen or experienced from leaders in the church, you've begun to doubt whether the faith that you've been given is in fact the faith of Jesus Christ. Or is it real at all? So doubt is everywhere. And we can understand why. I understand why doubt is everywhere, but what I want to ask all of you this morning is, what is the cost of all this doubt, of all this skepticism that we are living in and swimming in? And what I would suggest to you is there is a great cost. It is the loss of hope. What is hope? Let's put up a slide. These are my favorite definitions. Hope is confidence that the future is moving toward a good end. Or hope is assurance that what will be will be better than what is. When you doubt everything, you have no grounds for hope. Because hope is more than wishful thinking. Hope is about an assurance, a confidence, and doubt and skepticism is the exact opposite of those two things. The message of the story of Doubting Thomas is this. Next slide. We can move from doubt to hope because Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. If this story is true, if the resurrection is true, then no matter what has happened these past two years, no matter what does happen in the world and in your life, no matter what is happening inside of you, even no matter what happens to you, you can have hope, confidence, and assurance. The story of Thomas shows us how this happens. It shows us how the resurrection of Jesus Christ can move us from doubt to hope. Do you want to move there this morning? You can, and I hope to show you how. We're going to look at three things, three scenes, as it were, from the story of Jesus' appearance to Thomas. First, the reasons we doubt. Second, how Jesus responds to doubt. And third, what happens when Jesus resolves our doubt. First, the reasons we doubt. To deal with doubt, we first need to understand where does it come from, and the story of Thomas helps us understand why it is that we doubt. Since Thomas has been known throughout history as Doubting Thomas, we might at first think 
He is not the character in the Bible that I would want to be identified with. If you ever play the game or have ever asked the question, who in the Bible would you most want to be? No one ever says, Thomas. I want to be Doubting Thomas. And you have to feel bad for him a little bit. I love nicknames. We have some nicknames on our staff. We have nicknames in our family and for my kids. And Jesus liked nicknames too. You have Peter. And Jesus says, your name's not Peter. I'm going to give you a nickname. It is The Rock. That is a sweet nickname. It's like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Who doesn't want to have that nickname? And then James and John, other disciples that Jesus had, he said, I'm going to call you guys the sons of thunder. And it's like, yeah, I want that. That's a sweet nickname, sons of thunder. And Thomas had a nickname too. We actually see in verse 24 that he was called twin. Maybe this means he was a twin. We don't really know, but that was what they called him. But that's not the nickname that stuck, unfortunately for Thomas. No one says, oh yeah, the twin guy. No, everyone says the doubter. Doubting Thomas is what he's known as. Here's what I want you to think about. Why is his story included? His story is included here not to shame him or call him out. It's here because God in his word wants to tell us he understands the reasons why we doubt. At one time or another, we will all identify with Thomas, whether we want to or not. We'll all deal with some level of doubt. And when we get a fuller picture of Thomas's story, we can understand why he doubted and better understand why we doubt. The Gospel um, of John actually tells us more about Thomas than any other place in the Bible. If you go back to chapter 11, Jesus told his disciples, he was talking with them right before he went to Jerusalem for his final week. And he said, we're going to Jerusalem. He had found out his friend Lazarus had died. And when Jesus told his disciples this, his disciples said, wait, what? What? Jerusalem? Last time we went to Jerusalem, they tried to kill you, Jesus. Why are we going there? And Jesus explained, well, Lazarus has died, and I'm going to wake him up. I'm going to raise him. And then Thomas speaks up out of all the disciples, and here's what he says. Okay, let's go. Let's go too so that we may die with him. And maybe all the other disciples were like, whoa, (laughs) that's intense. I don't know if I'm there with you, Thomas, but Thomas was like, if we're going to go, let's go all in. And you get a sense, this is who he is. This is what he's like. He's the kind of person, once he was convinced, he was all heart. He was all in. But he was also the kind of person who wasn't easily convinced. If he's going to be all in, he needed to know for sure. Three chapters later in John chapter 14, and we have this passage to show on the slides. Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's his last time where he's in an extended moment with them, teaching them, preparing them for what is about to happen with his death. And in John 14, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. 
you know the way to where I am going. Thomas speaks up. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, we, we get a picture of what Thomas is like. He says, how can we know? I need to know for sure. With his heart, he wanted to be all in, but with his mind, he needed to be convinced. He needed to be certain of the truth. How can we know? You put these two things together, these, these two scenes, and we can see the reasons why Thomas and the reasons why we doubt. There are two main reasons why we doubt. Adam already mentioned these in the leading of the liturgy. They are doubts of the heart and doubts of the mind. Doubts of the mind are our intellectual questions. How can we know for sure? Doubts of the heart come from disappointment and disillusionment. When Jesus died and when Thomas didn't see him for himself and when he appeared risen to the other disciples, Thomas was dealing with both kinds of doubt. He had his doubts of the heart. He was afraid to hope because he didn't want to be disappointed again. He had just experienced unimaginable disappointment. He had followed Jesus for three years. He had gone all in and then Jesus was gone and then he died and nothing happened as he expected and hoped it would happen. And it looked like on Friday and on Saturday, it was all for nothing. On top of that, then there was this added grief of him not being there. All the other disciples said, we saw Jesus. Look, it was amazing. We saw him. And where was Thomas? Why would Jesus appear to everyone else and not him? It was too painful for him to hope. We wonder, why was, why was Thomas not there? Maybe he was all alone. Maybe he was so disappointed. Maybe he was so hurting that he couldn't even be with his closest friends. So he had these deep doubts of the heart, but he also had these doubts of the mind. He had to know for himself, okay, you guys saw him, I have to see this. In verse 25, he says, I have to put my own finger into the wounds. I have to put my hand into his side. If he was going to hope again, he had to know for sure that it was true, that it was real. Together, these doubts were so strong that despite all that Thomas knew, despite all that he had experienced about Jesus, and despite everything that everybody else was saying, we saw him, he was here, it's real. Look at what Thomas says at verse 25. No, unless I see for myself, I will never believe. What a strong statement that is. I will never believe. In that we hear his disappointment. We hear his hurt. We hear the strong need he had to know for sure. This story of Thomas is honestly told in the Bible. It's not a flattering story to tell about one of the founders of the Christian faith. Why is it here? It's here so that we would know that God understands the reasons why we doubt. The reasons of the heart the reasons of our mind. And some of you have felt at some level you've gone all in with Jesus. You've believed in him. You've tried to follow him. 
but he has disappointed you. Like Thomas, you feel like he's left you alone in the dark. Everyone else seems to be doing okay. Everyone else seems to be convinced, but you feel like you're left alone. He's come through for them, but not for you, and you struggle to hope again. You have these doubts of the heart. Things have happened, and you wonder why. Why, God? Some of you feel like you would like to hope, but you find yourself getting stuck on these questions. How can we know? Questions on whether it's true, whether it's real, and you have these doubts of the mind. And some of you have a combination of both of these doubts. I've had both these throughout my journey and continue to. Thomas's story is here to show us doubt is not bad. It's not something God shuns. It's not something God punishes. Rather, it is something that God understands and that he can move us through when we are honest like Thomas. Even when it feels like all we can honestly say is, unless this happens, I will never believe. Jesus meets us right there in our doubts. I say this because of how Jesus responds to Thomas. How does Jesus respond to Thomas's doubt? First, look at how he responds to doubt with patience. This is when you think about this point, at first you think, okay, I get it. He was, he was patient with him, but this is very, very powerful. If Jesus is truly the resurrected Lord and God-man, as Thomas confesses that he is here, and as Christianity teaches, think about doubt from his perspective. Would you, would you think about this for a moment with me? If you have young kids, or if you've ever been in the presence of a child for long, you might have a little taste of what this might be like for Jesus. Because with three and four-year-olds, inevitably you're having conversation, things come up, and you get into a debate about a basic fact, a basic fact of life. And they stand their ground against you and say, no, that's not how it is. Why do you think that? No, that's not how it is. It's like this. And eventually you go in these cycles with your children or other children you've talked to, and eventually you just have to pull it out. And you have to pull out your trump card and say, I've been alive 45 years on this earth. You, four. I know better than you. How can a three-year-old doubt me? What about Jesus and our doubts? Jesus can say to us, I've lived infinity years. I am omniscient and know all things. Thomas, I know exactly word for word what you said. Do you see how Jesus repeated it right back to him? When you doubted me, I heard every word of it. Like a four-year-old telling a 45-year-old, prove it. Our doubts are like that to such a greater degree to Jesus, Lord, and God. Prove you are God. Prove you are Lord. From his perspective, it is ridiculous. If Jesus is Lord and God, then he doesn't answer to us. He doesn't answer to our interrogations. We answer to him. We answer to his interrogation of us. And yet, that is why this story is so profoundly encouraging because Jesus responds to doubt with patience. What's fascinating to me is Jesus waited eight days here. 
Verse 26 says, he didn't respond to Thomas until the whole week went by. He didn't show up right away and said, you doubt me? Well, what's up? I'm right here. He waited a whole week. He didn't strike him with a lightning bolt of judgment. Instead, Jesus came to Thomas. He gave him time. And he said, I know your exact doubts, Thomas. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Jesus repeated word for word Thomas's doubts, and this is when it became very personal. Jesus was saying to Thomas, I know everything about you. I know the doubts that you have. I am Lord and God. I heard what you said. I know what you think. See my hands. See my side. The author C.S. Lewis, who has been so helpful for me in my own doubts and questions, he told the story of his own conversion from doubt and skepticism to faith in his book, Surprised by Joy. And he said, there are amicable agnostics, agnostics who are open and, and friendly towards thinking about the truth. But he said, sometimes even friendly agnostics can talk about humanity's search for God. And what he said is, we might as well speak about the mouse's search for the cat. I think what he was getting at is in this story, Jesus was so patient with Thomas, but he was also so persistent to pursue Thomas. Notice, Thomas really didn't ask. Jesus resolved these doubts. He just said, I'm not going to believe unless this happens. He demanded it. But Jesus came to him in gentleness and grace. Friends, those of you who have been doubting, those of you who have been holding on to doubt, doubts of the heart and the mind, Jesus is patient. And Jesus is persistent. And might I ask you to consider, even today here on Easter Sunday 2022, to consider how is Jesus pursuing me and coming to me in my doubts? Jesus responds with patience but that's not it. Jesus also responds with proof. For those who struggle with doubts of the mind, this is the question, did it really happen? But we could talk about all these other things, but did it happen? Is it true? Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? If so, it changes everything. If not, even the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 he says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, it's all for naught. Our faith is vain and empty. The story of Thomas here gives us in a crystal clear way what the doubting mind wants to know. Why believe in Jesus? And the answer is because he did truly rise from the dead. Jesus Christ, in the same body that he was crucified, rose again from the dead. He was the same, but he was radically transformed. He could come into buildings, but they were locked, not, not even using the door, but it was the same body that he died in. And in verse 27, he says, put your finger here, look at my hands. See for yourself. Christianity stands or falls on what we could call public truth. It stands and falls on something observable, historical, real, touchable, seeable, not an inner private truth. 
Not an experience that the disciples had and made up so that other people could have that same experience. That is not the claim of Christianity. It rests on the actual body of Jesus Christ coming up out of the grave with the nail marks on his hands and the the piercing scar on his side. And here we are given reason to have solid hope, confidence, and assurance in the truth of Christianity. What the honest doubter needs is here. And in fact, it was here for Thomas. And in fact, it was here even before Jesus appeared to Thomas. I don't have time to do a full-fledged overview of the evidence of the, for the resurrection, but quickly, here it is. There was the empty tomb. If you read the entire chapter of John 20 and what led up to this point, everybody was freaking out because they were saying, the tomb is empty. We went to go visit the tomb of Jesus. It was open and it was empty. What happened? And throughout history, this has pretty much gone on as an undisputed fact. The tomb of Jesus has been lost in history. Why is this so significant? Because tombs of relatives at this time and teachers who were revered, these tombs were venerated, they were remembered, they were visited. No one would have forgotten where the tomb of Jesus was. And to visit that tomb would have been something all his followers would have done. But no one cared about the tomb. It was forgotten, it's lost. No one knows where it is. Why? The tomb was empty. Secondly, there was no body. The tomb was empty, there was no body. Many wanted to stop and squash this new movement. And all that had to be done to squash the movement was to produce the body of Jesus Christ. And it never happened. And thirdly, there were the eyewitnesses. Thomas's friends said, we saw Jesus. We know the tomb is empty, there is no body, and Jesus has appeared to us, risen from the dead. Now, we sometimes think that back then, it would have been a lot easier for someone to believe that someone could rise from the dead. That was back then. They believed all kinds of stuff. We're modern people. But the reality is, it would have been harder for Thomas to believe than it is for us. Why? Because of how strong Thomas's convictions would have been in his own Jewish worldview. One about resurrection, No one believed resurrection happened in the middle of history. They believed it happened at the end, and if resurrection happened, then the end had come. A deeply held belief. Secondly, when Thomas sees Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. What had been drilled into him ever since he was a little child is there is one God. There is one God, and he is far above us. He would not become a man. So in a world of idols and gods everywhere, they would never compromise their belief in the one God that can't share his deity. They wouldn't even pronounce the name of God so much they reverenced and protected this idea that there is only one God and we cannot see him. And here Thomas says, my Lord and my God. What could possibly change such core beliefs? Empty tomb. Nobody, and he was an eyewitness. It's true. And so there is a basis for hope for the doubting mind. 
There is reason to have confidence that the future is moving toward a good end. There is an assurance that we can have that what will be will be better than what is. And it's not based on wishful thinking, not on blind faith, but on truth. In verse 29, we see Thomas got the proof he asked for, right? I want to see. I want to put my finger. I want to see the side. Proof might not be the best choice of words for me to use I cannot prove to you right now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus rose from the dead. I can offer you evidence that I just did, a very strong case, and I think no other explanation can come even close. But proof of Christianity is not in an argument. And this is what Thomas experienced. I have a few pictures. I wanted to show these. These are They kind of give me the heebie-jeebies a little bit to see Thomas, like right there. He's putting his finger right in the side. This is from the 1500s, I believe, 1600s. Next picture. This is from a tomb, a sarcophagus. There's Thomas touching the side of Jesus. Next picture. And again, this picture shows up over and over again. And what it assumes is this, that Thomas's requirement, unless I touch, put my finger in, that he actually did it. But look at the text. It doesn't say he touched Jesus at all. And many, many scholars say he didn't. He said, unless I touch, I put my finger in and put my hands on his side, I will never believe. But when Jesus appeared to him, it looks like he never even touched Jesus didn't come proving himself to Thomas in an argument. He came with the scars and the wounds on his body. And Thomas didn't say, it's true after all, the argument is good. He said, my Lord and my God. Because Christianity offers us not an argument, but a person. He says, my Lord and my God. And his heart was melted. The scars and the wound was for me. And the doubts of his mind were answered. When Jesus resolves our doubt, third point, what happens? Verse 28 shows us. In verse 28, we see Thomas make his confession. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. The greatest doubter, the greatest skeptic in the Gospels, is the same one who makes the highest and greatest and loftiest confession in all the Gospels. Nothing anyone ever said about Jesus in all of the Gospels comes even close to what Thomas is saying right here. My Lord and my God. When Jesus addresses and resolves his doubt, he goes from I will never believe to my Lord and my God. What I believe we're being shown here is the role of doubt in the development of faith and hope. Thomas's confession is the strongest because his doubt was the strongest. And this is what I think we're supposed to take away from that, a superficial and shallow faith that is never tested, that never passes through the trials and the seasons of doubt, is a vulnerable faith. But a faith that is forged through the doubts of the heart and the mind is deep and personal. It's not intellectual and conceptual. It's personal. My Lord and my God. 
Friends, we need not fear our doubts. Doubt and disappointment will come. And these can be what Jesus uses to produce in us a deeper and more personal faith. I prayed for myself. I prayed for this service last night. And my prayer for all of you was this, Lord, resolve our doubts. The doubts of our hearts in our minds. And would you hear Jesus' words here? Do not disbelieve, but believe. That is the choice, to disbelieve, to doubt, or to believe. And I want to challenge you because there can be honest doubts and honest questions, and there also can be smokescreen doubts, doubts we use to avoid the choice. For one of our reflection quotes in the bulletin, the author Austin O'Malley said this, you cannot knock a man down who will not stand up, nor argue with a skeptic. The point is, if you doubt everything, if you're skeptical about everything, then what are you standing on? When we have our doubts, when they come up, whether doubts of the heart or doubts of the mind. We need to learn to doubt our doubts. We need to look at ourselves and go, what, on which basis am I doubting these things on? What am I standing on? Am I avoiding the choice that Jesus puts before me? And my Christian friends, are we avoiding the implications that are coming to us again afresh with full force if the risen Jesus is true and he is Lord and God? When Jesus resolves the doubts of our hearts and minds, we can have hope, solid and certain. What does that look like? Well, Jesus' resurrection, what does it mean? For all who believe in him as Lord and God, it means you will be resurrected like him. It means your death is not the end. It means you will join together with Jesus in a new creation where there is no longer any death or pain or suffering. No longer any war or disease. It means all things created good and glorious will be renewed and freed from evil, from the curse, and from darkness. It means you will be glorified that your truest and more, most real self will be revealed. You will be set free to be who God has made you to be in the presence of the glory of God forever and ever. It means that everything that happens in this world and in your life, no matter what it is, is working together to bring you to that glorious end. If Jesus is Lord and God, it means nothing can stop him from that. The thing that is most disappointing you, the doubts of your heart, the things that stand in the way of your mind, if Jesus is Lord and God, he can handle those things. Nothing can stop him from renewing and resurrecting all things. You can have hope. Do you want this hope? It can be yours. There's nothing greater that the heart could imagine. There's nothing greater that the mind could conceive than this hope that is in the risen Jesus. You can move from doubt to hope. How? Say to the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus. I pray for my own heart and for all the people here this morning. We think of Thomas. We hear what you said to him. That blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That you promise blessing to those who believe in the testimony of those apostles who did see. And who say to you, my Lord and my God. Lord, would you resolve our doubts by the power of your love? Would you melt our hearts in the places where we're disappointed, where we're struggling to hope? And would you come with the full force of truth that we would confront and choose not to disbelieve, but to trust, and in trusting to find you faithful, true, and trustworthy. We ask it all in your powerful name. Amen.